0: Today's show is an interview with a man that I got to know many years ago. He's incredibly kind, encouraging, and super supportive of women. He was a police officer, a family man, and a fellow CrossFit athlete when I knew him. And I was absolutely stunned to see his face on the front page of my newspaper after he was arrested and charged with felony domestic violence. I could not wrap my head around that, given what I knew about him and what my interactions with him had been, especially the conversations that we had had about teaching women how to protect themselves. I moved out of the Bay Area and did not see any further stories about him, so I didn't know really what had happened until a few months ago when I saw that he had been sentenced and was getting ready to go to prison. Then at the beginning of July, I saw that he had released an episode of his podcast that was called Domestic Violence, Cycle of Abuse, and How to Get Out of an Abusive Relationship. After listening to that show, I knew I had to bring him on to Born to be a Badass, and I'm so pleased that he agreed to come on. I am sure you will understand why I thought this was so important when you listen to our conversation. Here we go.
1: Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self protection expert, Cynthia Jolicoeur Rude.
0: Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur Rude. Today, I am really excited to. To bring on the show my first male interviewee, he is a man that I got to know. I don't even know how many years ago, but probably well over a decade through CrossFit, and he is coming on the show to talk about a subject that is not very frequently discussed. So I'm really glad that he's here, and I'm sure that you're going to get a ton out of the show. Danny Birdie is the founder of Iron Crew Athletics. He has bachelor's degrees in both psychology and kinesiology. He's a CrossFit level two coach and he was a head coach at NorCal CrossFit, which is now NC Fit, for two years before he started Iron Crew Athletics. He's been immersed in fitness since he was 12 years old and has an immense passion for helping other people. Danny specializes in helping people find sustainable exercise and nutrition plans, and his vision is a world where everyone stays in shape and eats healthy forever. Welcome to the show, Danny.
2: Thank you very much for having me on. It's an honor to be the first male guest.
0: Well, thank you. And I'm so thrilled that we were able to put this together because, you know, we go many years back and my memories of working out next to you at what was then CrossFit Santa Clara (laughs) back in 2008, I think, right?
2: It was. That's when that gym opened back in a small little 1500 square feet. Now it's like the world's premier CrossFit gym with, you know, 20 plus locations all over the world.
0: <laughs> but I remember those days of working out next to you and even going to some of the early iterations of the CrossFit games and the regional competitions and things and uh, and watching you compete and uh, picnicking with your kids and, and your wife at the time out on the infield of one of the venues. And I have some very happy memories of hanging out with you and working out and just watching you crush things while I was limping along as a not very in shape mother of four young kids trying to get going. So
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I do too. I think it's great to see you start your own podcast and like put yourself out there. It's so cool to see stuff like that. You've been super involved with the uh, Tony, is it Tony Blower? Is that my pronouncing it right? Yes. In his tactics and helping women defend themselves and be situationally aware. And it's just super cool to see you giving back, you know, because uh, it's it, it just, it, it takes a special type of person to be able to put themselves out there for people to criticize. And it's really cool to see you doing that.
0: Oh, cool. Well, thank you. And and likewise, I, I think I hit you up when I was thinking about starting a podcast because you had already started yours and uh, you were so kind as to give me some of your experience and insight to help me get going so
2: and here you are look at it
0: here we are yeah we're we're coming up around episode 50 i think i don't remember awesome hit that but well i like to start the show with some sort of quick and easy questions before we dive into the really deep stuff and we're going to go into some pretty nitty gritty territory today so i just want to ask you a few questions to get us in the groove and then we'll we'll dive in are you ready
2: absolutely let's let's roll
0: okay what is the most challenging physical activity you have ever attempted?
2: Mm, My first marathon when I was 23, I had trained for a marathon for about four or five months because I was uh, ending my college life. And I had remember specifically thinking to myself that I wanted to check that box of being able to complete a marathon. So I trained really hard. My pace at the time during training was an eight minute mile which in hindsight is really fast because now I'd be like a nine and a half minute mile. But anyway, I was really prepared for an eight minute mile and I get to the start line and this is in San Diego. And, you know, three, two, one, go and everyone's off uh, to, to, to the races. And I come out there like a bat out of hell at <laughs> like, a, like a 740 something pace, which is about 15 seconds faster than what I was, I was supposed to be going. But I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, I feel great. You know, I've been carb loading. I've been tapering. I feel amazing right now. I'm going to be able to sustain this. And hell, I might even be able to break the three-hour mark if I keep this pace up. Well, lo and behold, I get to the 13-mile, the halfway point, and it hits me. And I think to myself, oh, God, I don't know if I'm going to be able to sustain this pace. And then mile 18 hits, and I'm slowing down. Mile 20 hits, I'm slowing down. Right around mile 22 is when there was this part of the the trail or the uh, the course where, you know, the the roadway was like a freeway that was shut down and you enter from the side of the freeway and you had to go right. And as I'm going right, I'm seeing the people that were in front of me turn around about 400 meters ahead of me. And I'm thinking to my, and and it's dawning on me that I have to run about 400 meters down just to make a U-turn to go back the other direction to where I'm already at. Mm -hmm. So that mind game right there was like, I can't believe I have to run all the way over there just to run back. This sucks. And it just, that wall hit me. So when people say that they hit a wall in a marathon, I know exactly what that means. So those last four miles of my marathon were probably the most excruciating pain I've ever felt physically. My feet were on fire. My legs were on fire. My whole body, head to toe, was just flat out in pain. But nonetheless, I crossed the finish line and I checked that box and I'm like, you know, I'll never do that again. I literally thought that when I said, when I crossed the finish line, I said to myself, that was nice. I'll never do that ever again. That was, that was, that was so crazy. (laughs) But now about a couple months ago on my 38th birthday, a buddy of mine who also has a birthday that's the same as mine, we decided that we were going to run an unofficial marathon on a dirt trail in the hills. And we went, out, we went out and ran a marathon. So I, I've run two, but the first one was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done.
0: Oh, man. Well, you made a classic rookie mistake.
2: <laughs> Way too hot. That's a, that's a classic CrossFit rookie mistake too, right?
0: Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I totally get what you're talking about with sort of the incremental oh shit factor as you get further and further into it, because that's what I experienced too. I've only done one marathon and I didn't run all of it. I walked part of it. Got blisters at mile three, which was a total shocker to me. And uh, I just remember the same thing, like getting to different parts of it and going, I like the 13 mile mark. It was like, oh shit, there's like the same again yet to go.
2: (laughs) Yes, it hits you. And, you know, marathon running is just not natural for humans to be doing it so fast, right? Like walking a marathon, not all that hard, just takes a little bit of willpower and grit. But running a marathon, man, that is just not natural for the human body to endure, especially on pavement, where yeah. you're just pounding, pounding, pounding blisters, you get nipple abrasions, you get chafing in your between your legs. It's just a hot mess.
0: It really is. It is. And you know, I'm, I'm laughing at your little turnaround story too, because a lot of marathons are out and back ones. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I don't think that'd be a good match for you ever.
2: <laughs> no, no way. Do you- Never doing something like that again.
0: Awesome. <laughs> well, if you could trade places with anybody living or dead, who would that be and why? Hmm.
2: I've been ultra fascinated by the life of Jesus Christ and not to get super religious or anything like that. But, you know, there are some who believe that, you know, that he he was not the son of God and that he, he was just a human being, just like everybody else. And that, you know, it, it, he was was crazy, you know, that there was like the the rumors that he was crazy and that he was, you know, not sent here by God, but I don't want to get religious with that. I just, what I'm fascinated, I would trade places with Jesus because, you know, the fact that he at a time was so influential, literally that, you know, they, they created a a marker before Christ and after death. I mean, he changed the world. And so if I was going to go back in time, I would trade places with Jesus Christ just to live and walk in his shoes for all of what he did, all of what he said, and just all of the uh, influence that he had during his time. And, and during a time when there was you know, no technology, yet he was changing the world as he did it. It's amazing. I'm very fascinated with Jesus Christ.
0: Wow. Go big. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting choice. And, you know, in, in making that choice, you're, you're also saying that you would be willing to experience everything that he did. And I mean, knowing the kind of person you are, it doesn't surprise me that you would not be deterred by sort of the price that he paid for the way that he was.
2: Right. And, and, and just, I think that's probably the most fascinating part about it as well wouldn't necessarily be the thing that I would look forward to the most, especially if my measly little marathon was the hardest physical thing I've ever done. I don't know how I would fare with the way he went out.
0: Well, okay. This is going to be kind of a strange question to follow that one up with, but what's your favorite self-care practice? (laughs)
2: Uh, Exercise uh, for sure. hundred percent is exercise. It's for me, exercise has Over the last five years or probably three years, actually since my domestic violence incident, which I know is what we're going to be talking about in detail. Since then, you know, my body has responded in very interesting ways. And uh, because of the stress over the last three and a half plus years, you know, it's done things to my body that I never experienced before, like, you know, different inflammation and pain in my hip and my knee and my ankle and different things that had popped up that never were a factor before. And I attribute it to all of the stress that I have gone through over the last three and a half years. And because of that, like gone are the days where I'm just crushing workouts, like what you used to remember me as, Uh, now it's more meditative. And so although exercise is a, is a physical endeavor and it helps me stay strong and, and, you know, prevent disease and all that stuff it's also very therapeutic and, med- and and it's more meditation for me. I'm focusing on my breathing. I'm focusing on how I'm feeling. I'm processing things that have happened the day before or throughout the day. Um I'm reflecting on conversations that I had and just it's a really good way for me to become hyper aware of how I'm feeling physically and emotionally.
0: Oh, that's that's cool and I wonder how much of that is also just age?
2: A big a big part, Cynthia, as as you probably know. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Actually, older than you. I'll be fifty-eight this year.
2: Oh wow! So you're you got a, a couple decades on me.
0: I do. I could be your mother. <laughs> well, maybe. I would
2: have never guessed. I would. I would have. I would have pinned you as late forties, maybe early fifties.
0: <laughs> I wear them well.
2: Young at heart.
0: Yes, but you know what you're speaking to though about the impact of stress on the body is is really immense, and I think at the time that you and I first met that was something that I was dealing with was having four children being separated, you know, having a lot of stress in my life with some of the things that my kids were doing. And, you know, for me going to work out every day was sort of the one investment I was able to make in my own health. And it was my one stress reliever. And, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate that. That's, you've taken that to an even deeper place because being able to focus on, your breathing and being able to have sort of the quiet for things to bubble up that you can process as you're moving is, is awesome. And I don't think it's that rare, but I think a lot of us don't talk about it.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of people um, might not necessarily have pieced it together quite yet, but I do think that a lot of people on a subconscious level know that that's happening and maybe they haven't prioritized it or maybe put it, put that thought into the forefront of their mind yet.
0: Yeah. That's really cool. Well, what advice would you give to young men in their twenties that you wish you had known when you were that age?
2: Mm. I would just reiterate how, how young you actually are and how much time you actually have left. I know when I was graduating college and starting my life and feeling the pressure to start my life, you know, and, that was one reason why I got married so young, and we are uh, we are now since divorced. Um, but I was married at age twenty-two, and I I felt like that was the appropriate age to get married because you know by the time you graduate college, you get kicked out into the world, you get a job, you buy a house, you get a white picket fence, you have two point five kids, the whole nine yards, and that was that was my mind frame going into it, and I felt even at a very young age in my early 20s feeling like man i need to get my career solidified i need to get my career in line i need to get my retirement started i need to get my benefits and in hindsight what i lacked at the time was a whole heck of a lot of self awareness a whole heck of a lot of life experience and just just not being able just not having enough exposure to enough things to be able to make sound decisions and I think that that's what I would reiterate to anybody in their 20s, because I hear a lot of people, especially people in their mid to late 20s, as they approach 30, they start to freak out like, oh my God, I haven't found the love of my life or, oh my God, I don't even know what I want to do with my life or you know those types of thoughts. And man, I mean, I'm 38, I know you're 58, but I plan on living until I'm 100 and I'm not even close to the halfway mark. I'm still, I'm still in the middle of the second quarter of my life. And I have a whole heck of a lot of things that I want to get done in that time. And I think back to 20 years ago when I was 18, and I'm just like, my whole mind sh- mind frame was a lot different then. So you have a lot of time, young 20-year-olds.
0: <laughs> I appreciate that because my kids, all four of my kids are in their 20s right now. And each of them in one way or another and sometimes multiple ways is experiencing exactly what you're talking about, which is like, Oh my God, I'm already behind. I should be further ahead. I should be this, I should be that. And, uh, you know, feeling like time is passing so quickly that they're approaching like critical point and they're, they're all still under 30.
2: Oh man. Yeah. They, you just, you got to like clip that last two minutes of what I just said and just send it to them and <laughs> you know,
0: show so <laughs> get it straight from you. So Let's talk a little bit about how you got into law enforcement. What What was that path like? Why did you go into that as a career?
2: Well, it goes back to my last answer, which was I felt like I needed to get my life started. And at the time, I did not know what I wanted to do. I was very confused. I, I majored, I double majored in kinesiology with the intent to be a PE teacher slash football, basketball coach, and just kind of live like the athletic life and, and give back to kids. And then I had a, I have a psych degree where my plan B was to go out and just be like an armchair therapist. And the more I got into that, the more I realized that I didn't want to do either of those things forever. So here I am with two degrees, highly employable, have a, a bunch of options that I can go do, but I didn't I didn't I didn't want to do any of them. And for both of those careers, the next level would have been to continue my education and get my master's or some sort of higher education, which I also didn't want to do because I knew I didn't want to do those two things. So now I'm left with what the heck do I do? And so I was working as a substitute teacher and a security guard. And I, you know, I remember my, my, my wife and I, we, we had just gotten married. We were married for about a year and, you know, not to get too into, de- in deep, in depth on that relationship, but There was some internal and external pressures on my end to be able to make a sustainable income, a consistent income, so that we can support that house white picket fence 2.5 kids. And I always wanted to be a cop when I was younger because my father was a cop. Now, my father wasn't the greatest father of of all time. I mean, he was an alcoholic. He was a chain smoker. He um, was very verbally abusive to uh, me and my brothers when we were young and i attributed his negativity towards the fact that he was a cop because that was kind of the stigma back then and even now today is cops are assholes right you know so i always thought like man if i become a cop i'm going to become that way and you know as i'm starting to get a little bit you know older and now i'm trying to find a career i go back to that i go back to well you know what maybe i can be a cop maybe i can do this maybe I don't have to be like my dad. I'm not my dad. In fact, I'm very opposite of my dad. So I've always, I have always wanted to be a cop because I wanted to help people. I wanted to uh, have something that was outdoors, something that I was going to not get bored of and interact with people, use my personality, use my people skills to communicate, and also work in a team environment. And all of those things fit very well on the law enforcement side. And uh, those, that was the main reason why I gravitated towards law enforcement.
0: So what were your responsibilities as an officer?
2: 911 calls, basically. So when you're on a patrol, when you're like, when you see a cop who's just driving down the road in their patrol vehicle, 99% of the time, those are the cops that you call 911 for whatever reason, those are the cops that come, you know, whether it's a fresh crime that's in progress, or if, if it's a cold crime that happened, like somebody broke into your car and you need the officer to dust for fingerprints and do an investigation, whatever the call is, uh, they're going to come out. Those are the types of people that come out, uh, officers that come out. So I worked for two agencies. The first agency, I was only there for three years. I worked patrol for two years at that agency, and then I worked as a school resource officer for one year. School resource officers are the cops that investigate all any and all crimes on a school campus as well as to teach D.A.R.E. Uh, and then in my second agency, I was a patrol officer for, I believe, three years and then or two years. And then I transferred to the motorcycle unit where my primary responsibilities was to ruin normal people's day. <laughs> write speeding tickets, write stop sign tickets, write cell phone tickets. Basically, uh, traffic revenue is what it boils down to. And then also investigate traffic collisions. So that was pretty much the bulk of my Ten year law enforcement career
0: so on your your patrol days, did you ever get called out on domestic violence calls?
2: Yes, primarily when it was like a swing shift or a graveyard shift because nighttime is when a lot of the domestic violence calls happen and you know I always remember those are the domestic violence calls are the most dangerous calls that a cop can be dispatched to other than like a, a person with a gun, but even those might technically actually be a little bit less dangerous for a police officer to go to because they already know that they're going to a call that's very, very high risk, meaning they know that there's a gun involved. So they know that they're going to be approaching that scene with their gun out ready to go. For a domestic violence call, it's, it's all over the place because there's emotions involved, anger, sadness, frustration that run the gamut of the emotions. Love obviously is involved. And then you have all this passion, and there's a domestic incident, and now there's violence. And it's gotten so bad that the cops have to get called out and investigate what's going on. A lot of times, because there's so much passion and love involved in these domestic disputes, it's one, of the, it's one of the higher probabilities that the suspect, whoever that may be, is going to pull a weapon, whether it be a gun or a kitchen knife, Uh, what have you, on an officer because they know that they're going to go to jail. And then there's also coupled with the fact that they feel like they're losing their partner if they have to go to jail. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then also, usually when you're going to domestic calls, you're going to the person's house. You're going to their home court, if you will. So those people in their home court, quote unquote, know where the knives are, know where their guns are, know where the weapons are. So it's a very, very dangerous situation as a cop. So I always remember that being the big thing that I thought about. But the other thing that I thought about often was was we talked off air about the quintessential poster child for a domestic abuser, and that usually is you know a big, strong, you know, masculine-looking man who's uh, type A, quote unquote alpha, very manipulative, very verbal, very controlling. You know, very, um, yeah, just all of those traits. You know, we, we all have that image in our mind of what a domestic abuse abuser looks like. And it oftentimes is coupled with a male. Now, one of my favorite things actually was to arrest that exact type of individual, you know, because oftentimes these individuals are bullies and they're using their bully status or all of those descriptors that I just described to pick on women. And that was something that never sat right with me. And that was something that um, always bothered me and just something that, uh, you know, something that I, I actually, I never liked putting handcuffs on people because I'm just an empathetic person. I, I just don't like to see people suffer, but I actually liked putting handcuffs on those types of people because I felt like they needed to go to jail. So those are, those are the main takeaways from my career when it came to domestic violence.
0: And what kind of training did you get as an officer who was going to have to deal with situations like that? Because I imagine that oftentimes when you arrive on scene, you don't really know what's going on or who did what to whom. So like, what kind of training did you get on how to interact with the people involved and what to look for and that kind of thing?
2: Well, it's just like any other investigation, to be honest, other than the safety aspect of making sure that everybody, like we, cops will call it officer safety, where, you know, when they're, they're doing things to favor the officer to make sure that they walk out of the situation safe and unscathed. So once the officer safety situation has been established, and we know that the scene is relatively sterile and what have you, then it turns into just like any other investigation. You separate the parties involved you separate the witnesses you have as many officers as you can on scene to um, to do that and then you uh, you talk to them and you interview them individually now oftentimes with female victims or even female suspects uh, you would want a a female officer to speak with that individual because more often than not women would feel more comfortable speaking with women so that's always a, a factor to consider but it's just like any other investigation you know the who what when where why you look for physical markers, whether it be on their hands or on their eyes or any defense marks or any uh, assault type marks. Uh, you, you look for weapons involved. You look for blood. You know, you're, you're looking for uh, any evidence that something uh, has occurred. And, uh, the, the, you know, the most important ones in certain cases are any witnesses, whether that be a witness from a next door neighbor who heard an argument and then a slap or whatever, or even a child, unfortunately, uh, a child in the other room can be a a great witness because oftentimes they're just going to tell the truth. They don't really know anything else other than tell the truth. So um, those are going to be some of your key witnesses. But yeah, that's typically how an investigation would go. As far as like the counseling side, um, I know a lot of people might be under the impression that police officers have, you know, all this great like training when it comes to like, you know, consoling victims and counseling victims. And, um, that's really not true. Uh, we don't, cops never really get training on how to counsel people. It's actually out of our scope of practice. Uh, we would just be more willing to refer them to outside sources, like whether it be a hotline or an actual therapist, or basically there's a, this big pamphlet that an officer will give to a victim to give them all of the resources that they need to make sure that they, they, they don't, this never happens again.
0: That's really interesting i I really don't know a lot about what the majority of officers are trained in, and i do I have worked with women who provide support in the domestic violence realm to victims and who also do some training for police departments to increase the awareness of what the dynamics tend to be and what to look for. Um, but it sounds like from your experience it's really pretty much just a straightforward investigation and there it doesn't sound like you got any specific training on you know things that might be a little bit different about a domestic violence investigation versus any other kind
2: not not really i mean if you, if you think about the way any other assault like let's say two people got into a fight at a park or something you know you would look for similar type things on that you know you would look for scratch marks you would look for you know Claw marks, or hair missing, or you know any any marks on the face, or any marks underneath their clothing, or um, you know you would just you would look for the physical evidence to corroborate what these individuals say. That's not to say that there weren't specific domestic violence classes that we took. We we always got like updates on domestic violence. The main considerations when investigating domestic violence, other than the physical evidence, would be just the psychological aspect of a potential victim not wanting to cooperate or uh, obviously a suspect not wanting to cooperate. And in those types of cases, that's when an officer would just have to rely on their ver- w- What police officers re- call verbal judo, w- which is basically building rapport. So officers, you know, when, when it comes to people who don't trust police or uh, so people who are a little bit hesitant to talk and be open about something super vulnerable, like domestic violence or sexual assault or what have you, They're going to be a lot more slow to open up, coupled with the fact that they might not want their lover to go to jail. And so in order to get that, extract that type of information out, it would be a little bit more of a slower process and a little bit more of like, hey, let's build some rapport with this person, get them to trust you so that they're a little bit more willing to open up.
0: You know, it's really interesting because what's crossing my mind right now is that there's a big parallel here because when When people ask me what I do, I'm very careful because if I just say I teach self defense, then they immediately think that all I teach is the physical, like it's all about the fight. And yet, the mental, emotional, psychological aspects are huge, you know, equally, if not more important than the physical piece. And in the domestic violence realm, often that's what you see is you see the physical side of it, but it's much harder sometimes to identify when there's emotional abuse, verbal abuse you know, the manipulation and the coercive control that you were talking about earlier. It's, it's a lot harder to see that. And I bet you only really get called on scene as an officer if there's been a physical altercation.
2: A thousand percent. It, it's very hard to quantify emotional and psychological abuse. So it's hard for a police officer to say, okay, this box is being checked. This box is being checked. This box is being checked. Therefore, we can make an arrest on an emotional abuse. So it, the law really is boils down to physical abuse or no physical abuse, and that's it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because oftentimes, and I can relate to this because of my personal experience, oftentimes the physical abuse is, is the longer term or the, or the um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the thing that happens after the emotional and psychological abuse. So, you know, the the cycle of abuse exists not only with physical, but also emotional, and it oftentimes starts with the emotional abuse, almost always, it almost never just escalates straight from zero to physical. It starts with manipulation, it starts with, you know, name calling, and then the whole cycle of of emotional abuse starts, and then it just continues to escalate. It's kind of like a drug, you know, it's like smoking a cigarette turns into smoking weed, turns into smoking hash, turns into you know, trying cocaine turns into trying acid. You know what I mean? Like it just kind of escalates in the same fashion as, as, you know, the gateway drug, which is marijuana.
0: Well, I do want to dive into that cycle of abuse with you, but before we go there, I want to just find out like what kind of conflict management or conflict resolution skills and strategies did you learn either, you know, as you were growing up or in your academic life or as an officer?
2: You know, as an officer, the uh, you know there was there was conflict resolution. Um, a lot of a lot of that stuff it didn't necessarily go over my head. I just i felt I've always been a very naturally conversational type person, and I've always been the type of person that can relate to anybody. I'm a highly empathetic person, so I'm able to put myself in most everybody's shoes, which allows me to ask certain questions that will extract certain information out of that individual. And that's no different than when you're dealing with somebody in a conflict. I can remember at a very early age when I was like 18 or 19, where I came across two people fighting in a parking lot. And I remember like walking over there and like talking to them and breaking up the fight just with my words. And I I couldn't even tell you exactly what I'm doing. I think I'm just talking to them like they're human. I'm trying to make sense of the situation. I'm trying to be peaceful, and I'm trying to come at them with with the assumption that I'm trying to help them. And that was always the approach that I took with people, even suspects, even the most hardened criminals. I would always come at them with an approach that, hey, I'm actually here to help you. I know it might not be the end result that you're looking for, but this is my job, and I'm here to actually try to make the world a better place. And I think when you approach people from that angle, it's easy for them to bring down their walls and open up to them. But as far as, um, you know, as far as that, that verbal judo, a lot of it was, was simply um, what's that book, uh, how, how to win friends and what, what, influence people and win friends or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, basically the foundation of that is like, call people by their name, make them feel good about themselves. You know what I mean? Like that type of stuff. That's essentially what verbal judo is. It's just rapport building, getting people to trust you. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, let's talk about the path that led up to your arrest and conviction for felony domestic violence. What was that relationship like over the time that you were together?
2: So I began dating somebody who was sick, was over a decade younger than me, which, um, you know, obviously in hindsight was not the greatest choice to be in a long-term relationship with somebody like that, not necessarily because it cannot happen. There's plenty of people who find themselves in that situation. But I think what was happening was there was, a huge maturity gap and a huge emotional maturity gap as well and what what i found myself doing was reverting back to my 20 my early 20 year old self and i started to you know certain things would happen where um, there would be an insecurity type marker uh, that would pop up and then that would turn into some sort of an argument and then that would turn into an apology and then that would turn into the honeymoon phase and i'm and i'm just talking essentially about the cycle of abuse where there's some sort of tension, which is step number one. You know, you have this tension building, whether it's a disagreement or whether it's a miscommunication or whether you did or said something that your partner didn't like. There's something that's bothering one person or the other or both. And then step number two is there's a lash out. This could be a verbal lash out. This could be an emotional outburst. This can be a complete ghosting or complete neglect and ignoring the other person. Or the worst case scenario, this could be a physical lash out. Um, And the physical lash out doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, punching or slapping or pushing. It could just be like throwing something. It could be slamming your fist on the counter. It could be, you know, knocking over a chair out of anger, punching a wall. Those are common ones. Any expression of physical force can be considered physical uh, domestic violence when it comes to that intimidation factor. And then step number three is is the apology. You know, the smoke clears, and then you get back together. And there's an apology, and oftentimes during this apology, there's uh, you know, there's guilt on both sides. Sometimes the abuser, uh, in classic abuser type cases, they try to minimize what happened. They try to almost make it seem like it's the uh, the victim's fault, like somehow they deserved it. And then the victim starts to believe that somehow they deserved it, and then that does crazy things to that person's psyche, they start to doubt themselves, they start to second guess themselves, they start to question whether or not they're even a victim or not. This is very common. This is step three. And then step four is, is the honeymoon phase, everything, it's all water under the bridge, the incident is forgotten. You know, there's nothing, everything's hunky dory, no abuse is taking place. And I I start off by explaining that cycle of abuse, because oftentimes in these types of relationships, that cycle of abuse happens at a very early stage in very subtle ways. And going back to your initial question, which was, how was this relationship like? It was very much like that on an emotional, psychological level. It was, you know, there would be something that was said or done that, um, you know, and I hate to point blame, but for the most part in the first few months of this relationship, it was all coming from the other person. And I was very confused and, you know, looking back on it, I think that it was an, it was a maturity uh, thing and I'm, I'm confused. I'm scratching my head. And then the cycle of that emotional abuse would happen. And then next thing you know, it's happened three or four times. And now I'm, now I'm just kind of used to it. Now I'm expecting it. Now I'm, you know, expecting a lash out. Now I'm expecting this person to completely disappear out of my life for five days. And then all of a sudden reappear as if nothing ever happened. And so, and then that turns into even more manipulation, this push pull, this, I love you, I hate you, this, you know, you mean the you're, you're, you're my life. You mean the world to me. I don't know what I would do without you. And then next thing you know, they're telling you how crappy of a person you are. And so, you know, that's, that's the types of stuff that was happening the first year of our relationship. And then it turned physical. And, And so we could talk about that as well. Um, unless you have anything else that you want to ask me about the initial phases of it all. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm really curious about, because, you know, as you as you alluded to earlier, like the classic depiction of domestic violence is the big alpha male who's out power and control. And there's a, a huge power discrepancy between the man and his partner, who's usually a woman and you know that's that's the typical thing and and honestly i've had guests on the show who have experienced that and i've had guests on the show who work with women who have been in relationships with men like that and what you are describing is a very different dynamic it's not one where there's a massive power imbalance between the two partners it really kind of doesn't matter whether it's a male or a female it's just that one of the partners is a little bit crazy making and that there's dynamics that start to happen where the other partner is ending up kind of going, what the fuck is happening? Like, what is this? And that's a very different pattern of domestic abuse than we commonly talk about. So I'm really, I'm really interested in this. And it strikes kind of close to home too, because one of my children has experienced something along these lines as well.
2: Well, I think the thing to remember is, you know, men, men are, can be soft and cuddly as well, no matter what they look like. In fact, you know, the more I'm in the fitness space, the more I realize that the most masculine, muscular buff dudes in the gym are oftentimes the most sensitive and empathetic and the ones that have a bleeding heart and the ones who are very vulnerable and just want to help people, you know, and I'm, I'm describing these things because no matter what gender you are, there's, people who represent that, those personality traits in both, on both sides. And so whether you're a male or a female, you can be susceptible to being a victim or being on the other side of abuse. And really what I'm getting at is it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what gender you are. Statistics show that one in three women are the victim of a domestic violence at some point in their life, and one in four men are victims as well. So the discrepancy isn't all that different. I just think that men have a harder time talking about it and admitting it. And I would, I was, and you know, I I was one of those people when I was in this relationship, I didn't want to admit that a woman was walking all over me. I didn't want to admit that a woman had a leg up on me. The person that I was dating was a very physical person. Uh, This person was a woman who was not petite by any stretch of the imagination. This person um, had, you know, martial arts training and was, you know, somebody who was physically, physically imposing for, for a female, not that she was bigger than or stronger than me, but this wasn't, you know, somebody who was a very, very tiny little person. And I, I never wanted to admit that this this woman, and this sounds very like very chauvinistic or, you know, just just kind of douchey to, to lack lack of a better term, but I didn't want to admit that I was getting bullied by a woman. And and no man wants to admit that. And it's just the unfortunate truth in our society that it makes you look weak as a man if you're letting a woman walk all over you like that. And so let alone a woman walk all over you in a physical way. So the reason why we don't talk about this stuff is because no man wants to admit this stuff. And it's embarrassing, it, you know, and, and coupled with the fact that depending on the type of relationship that you have, and this happens on for both sides, men and women. You want to protect your partner. You don't want your friends, your family, to think anything differently of them. You don't want them to like say, "Oh my God, they they slapped you." You should never be with them again. You want to protect them, and you want to, you know, you want to preserve what what little good you have left in that relationship, and you're holding on for dear life. But going back to the personality traits of somebody who falls into being a victim of this type of abuse, men and women, highly empathetic people, people who are overly helpful, meaning they just, they want to help They're givers, people who may have some insecurity about their own self-worth, which I did at the time. There, people, people in this uh, type of relationship who are on the receiving end oftentimes feel like they can fix their partner. They feel like they can be their figurative and literal punching bag. And if all they do is just get out all their frustration and anger and all of the things that are on their mind, if they could just take that all out on me, then they're going to be happy. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, but those are so those are some of the personality traits. And those personality traits, they don't have a gender. They don't have a, a, a frame. You know, I'm six foot, 195. It doesn't have a frame. It doesn't have, you know, aesthetics attached to it. You either are that personality or you're not. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or woman or if you're buff or not.
0: Yes, and in, in addition to all of that, I think if you're male and you're in this kind of a situation, there is one piece to it, especially if you are the kind of man that you're talking about, which is you know, we have this, this value of masculinity that is men don't hit women. So if things do turn physical and you're on the receiving end of it, you have this other element to kind of juggle in the mix. Like did you find that coming up at all when when things kind of got sideways with your partner and things got physical? Did you struggle?
2: A hundred percent, yes. That was something that I was trying to prevent at all cost. So a year into our relationship, my partner at the time, my ex-girlfriend, turned all of the cycle of emotional abuse into physical. And uh, attacked me physically uh, with, you know, punching and slapping and hair pulling and whatnot. And at that time, all I was trying to do was get away. And all I was trying to do was just ride the wave of whatever the heck was happening so that I didn't have to react. Because you're right. In my mind, you don't hit women, you don't hit women at all. And that's just, you know, like I said earlier, you like, I personally loved taking men who hit women to jail. That was something that I enjoyed doing because it, it goes against my values so much that I actually enjoyed taking those people to jail. The cycle of abuse happened again, that outburst happened, there was uh, reconciliation, and then there was that honeymoon phase after, and then the tension built up again. A Couple months later, same exact thing happened, slightly different, but essentially the same exact thing happens, and it ends the same way. The cycle of abuse happens, And there's that that makeup, there's that honeymoon phase, now there's tension building. Now flash forward to the night that I was arrested, same exact thing happened. Literally every single time it felt like it was was on repeat. Except on the third night when it was happening, I was so frustrated and I was so scared that it, it felt like it was escalating to the point where I was going to get severely injured. And if I did not respond, by defending myself, then it would have escalated to a point where I would have been severely injured. Unfortunately, in that specific moment, it had gotten so bad that by the time I needed to respond, I felt like I needed to respond very swiftly and very harshly. And in that process, I did more damage to that person than she did to me. And that was essentially what you described, which is trying your best to not Give in to that because you don't hit women. That actually led to my demise personally because I was trying to prevent me from having to respond for as long as I possibly can. Which in turn, when it actually, when I actually did have to respond, it turned into a, 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 an excessive response. And that was that was kind of the crux of this whole situation for me is that I responded excessively, and that is why I was arrested and I was found guilty.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what that process was like? Like once, once this incident happened, like who called the police, how did they end up coming and what was that, what was that process like? Cause I imagine it was pretty fucking bizarre to be on the other side of that call.
2: To, to say the least, um, it was such a surreal a surreal experience it was it, it it still felt it still feels like it was a dream like it still feels like it never even happened it feel uh, it felt like this isn't really actually happening no this can't be true like this actually can't be true i actually thought she, so she called the police and i actually thought that she was this is kind of a weird side side note but i had reason to believe that she was pretending to call the police to scare me because I, it happened at my house and I lived in Santa Clara, which is where I worked. I worked in the, at the agency where I lived. In. So she calls the police and my colleagues show up. So when, when that happened, she left. And so it kind of confirmed, she, she was on the phone and she left and, and this is all public record. So it's, it's not anything that I'm divulging. that's confidential. And I, and I, um, and I remember thinking to myself, she's not calling like, why would she call? Why would she call when this happened the way it did? And she left and closed the door and I cleaned up a little bit and I did the dishes. I got ready for bed. And again, this is the cycle of abuse issue is that this actually started to become kind of normal because it happened twice before. So I kind of brush it off like nothing happened. Well, I wake up the next morning and I'm getting phone calls from my own agency telling me that they need to talk to me about this incident. And now I'm thinking, oh my God, she actually did call. So I was forthcoming from the very beginning. I was very uh, I was very open and honest about the whole thing. And because of the, the domestic violence laws, I believe throughout the country, but for sure in California, is they always take what's called the dominant aggressor. So they will always, they, they have, first of all, they have to make an arrest on a domestic violence dispute. If it turns physical, no matter what, somebody has to go to jail. The cops do not have a choice. And that stems from the OJ Simpson law of uh, when he uh, murdered Nicole Kidman. I'm sorry, uh, Nicole uh, Simpson, because there was probably six or seven incidences where OJ Simpson brutally battered her prior to him, to him killing her. Mm -hmm. So that launched a different law that said, Hey, look, we don't want to walk away from a domestic violence incident without making an arrest. It's a liability issue now. So um, first of all, so they have to make an arrest. And then number two, when deciding, when it's a, what's called a mutual combat situation, which means both parties were fighting each other. When it's that they have to decide who's the quote dominant aggressor. And they take, they arrest the dominant aggressor. Even if the initial aggressor, did less damage. So it doesn't matter who started the fight. It matters who did more damage during the fight, if that makes sense. Hmm. So during that investigation, like I said, because my response was swift and I d- essentially did more damage to her than she did me, they took me. And I remember, yeah, I mean, my whole life was falling apart. My whole life was completely falling apart. Um, I knew that if I was going to get arrested for a felony, which I knew it was, uh, I would not be able to be a cop anymore. So immediately, I'm starting to think. Okay, I need to defend myself. Obviously, this is a self-defense case. I need to call a lawyer. I need to get my ducks in a row. Um, essentially, my, you know, for 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 three months after that happened, I was all over the place in my mind. I didn't know what to believe. I didn't know who to believe. I didn't know who to trust. Um, you know, my lawyer was my best friend during those first three months because I didn't know who else to trust. Like, I literally couldn't even trust myself because I couldn't even believe that I had allowed this type of person into my life, let alone my children's life. And it was just a very, very challenging time. And, um, I remember even, even during those early phases, even when I was struggling and not knowing what I was going to do and not knowing if I was able to going to be able to continue to become a cop, I still was, I was, I still was just fighting, you know, I was still planning and thinking ahead, like, how can I, what type of job am I going to do after? And, you know, just kind of constantly moving forward. I'm a big believer that, you know, you spend 15 minutes or so on being sad and angry and and depressed or whatever emotions you want to feel. But if you cannot change the circumstances, if you cannot change the outcome, then you have to start channeling your energy to more positive things. Um, But yeah, the the three and a half years that ensued was, you know, every month or two, I was in and out of court you know, appearing then the court case would get continued. Um, Then there was a preliminary hearing that was a court, that was a court trial. And there's, then there was a one jury trial during the first jury trial. It was uh, what's called a hung jury, which means that the 12 jurors could not come to a conclusion. They were at a a standstill. And then usually during those cases where there's a hung jury, almost, you know, 99% of the time, the district attorney will decide to drop the case or maybe lessen the charge, maybe turn it into a misdemeanor. But because I was a police officer, uh, the, the courts did not want to risk any backlash from the media for treating a cop better. They don't want to have any backlash saying like, Oh, they're giving cops better treatment than normal people. So my status as a police officer at the time of this whole thing, it actually, it, it made my, my chances of, of this case, winning this case worse. So the district attorney decided that they were going to retry the case, which is very rare in circumstances like this. And then on the second trial, it was, I was found guilty. Um, and so that flash forward a, a month or so, um, I meet with a probation. So after you're found guilty for any crime, you, you need to uh, meet with a probation officer so that they can assess you to see how long you should spend in jail, what your punishment should be. And when they make these assessments, they send their evaluation over to the judge and the judge is able to use that information to formulate their final sentence. And when I met with my probation officer, um, she basically looked at me and she was like, Hey, you are a perfect example of somebody who qualifies for just getting, you know, Five years of probation and spending no time in jail. She goes, but because you were a police officer, we have to do. We ha- I have to recommend more than that. I have to recommend jail time because they do not want the backlash of the media getting a hold of something like this and saying, "Whoa, you know, Santa Clara Department of Justice is it w- went very lenient on this police officer because, especially now, with the state of the country." you know any any form of favoritism towards law enforcement is obviously frowned upon so the probation department recommended that i spend 2 years in prison the judge overruled that and gave me 3 years in prison which i also my my lawyer said that that's very that's very rare all of the domestic violence people that he has represented in his my lawyer has been a lawyer for over 40 years he said in his 40 years of being a lawyer he's never seen a domestic violence case send their suspect to prison. Uh, they've all got probation. They, just, they do domestic violence counseling. They have a restraining order against the victim and they move on with their life. But again, because of my status as a police officer, I, um, you know, I feel like I had to endure a little bit more than most people would.
0: Wow. Well, what has been the biggest lesson for you going through this process? And I guess actually back up one second, like, so you're not in prison right now. What happened?
2: Yeah. I forgot to mention that. So I was found guilty on February uh, 13th. I remember that because it was the day before Valentine's day. (laughs) And uh, so I was found guilty. They told me to come back in a month for my sentencing in between that time. That's when I met with the probation department and whatnot. I go back for my sentencing they sentence me to three years in prison. They tell me that they, they're going to give me a week to get my ducks in a row, get my order, my affairs in order, meaning, you know, cancel automatic payments, put my car on non-op. These are things that I did, you know, break the lease early on my, um, on my living space, pay extra money to break that lease early, rent a storage unit for all the things that I wanted to keep, arrange for childcare. Uh, my ex-wife would, we had to transfer over custody to full custody to her cuz we had we had 50/50 custody i had to transfer 50, uh, full custody to her just in case something happened when i was in prison her and i are on very good terms so it's not a huge deal it's just more of a formality but all i'm getting at is there was um, my week my week leading up to the day i was supposed to go to jail and start my time was basically full of logistics and getting my life in order so that my life could be on hold for three years so that I can finally move on with my life. Well, that happened in mid-March. And as we all know, mid-March is when COVID-19 started to go crazy in the United States and most states uh, went into shelter in place. So about three or four days before I was going to go turn myself into jail, shelter in place was ordered. When I walk into the jail facility, the front lobby, I walk in, and the deputy at the front says, uh, are you sure you're supposed to come in today? Because uh, I don't think we're taking anybody. <laughs> like, And at this point, it's kind of comical because, again, I've been through so much leading up to that day. And I've experienced a lot of anxiety in those three and a half years leading up to that day. And believe it or not, Cynthia, I was actually, when I walked into that jail to turn myself in, I was less anxious then than I have been in the last three and a half years, mm-hmm. because at, at least I knew what I needed to do to get this behind me. Yeah, I knew that I, I was mentally prepared. I was physically prepared, emotionally prepared to do this. And I, at least I had direction, at least I knew what to expect. But then the second I walked in there and that guy told me, I don't think you're going to come in today. All of a sudden my heart starts racing all of a sudden I start getting, you know, this lump in my throat. All of a sudden I feel butterflies in my stomach. And it was the anxiety of the uncertainty of what was going to, what was happening. And I sat there in the lobby for three hours while they figured out what to do with me. And they said, Hey, we're sorry, but you got, you have to come back in two months. So, <laughs> so now I got to get my car off a of non-off. I got to go get insurance on my car. I got to go find a job. I got to go figure out what to do with the kids. I got to figure out where to live. I mean, so many things I needed to go take care of and, and basically undo, right, for the next two months so that I can live my life. But then again, it's like, okay, what, what am I going to do for two months? No job's going to hire me knowing that I'm supposed to be in prison in two months. And then back in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you know, what the heck is going to be different in two months? COVID's going to be worse in two months than it is now. Why am I even going to come back in two months? So I was supposed to go back in May. I go into May in May, and they say no, you're not going into May. Going in July. I go back in July. They say no, sorry, COVID's still a thing. You got to come back October first. So as it stands today, and the day of this recording is July 28th, I'm supposed to go back in. I'm supposed to go in to start my term, my sentence, uh, October first. Now the unfortunate part is, as it stands today, I'm not getting quote unquote credit for my time being served because I'm not actually in custody. So now, now my 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 whole life is being delayed even more, which is um, obviously very stressful. So that's why I'm not in prison to answer your question.
0: Jeez Louise. What a nightmare, man. Uh, and a roller coaster, emotional and, and logistical life roller coaster.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, so to answer your your first question though, which was what what have I learned throughout this is, I I, I've learned to take one day at a time, like one step at a time. You know, because my life, you know, at the time it was just it was so uncertain, and I I didn't know where to channel my energy, and I didn't know what was going to happen, and what what I was going to be doing, and how I was going to make money, and all those things. It really forced me into a mind frame that I can only control what. I can control and anything that I cannot control I cannot waste energy doing that because it will drive me up the wall so if I have learned anything from this it's how to channel energy in the right direction when there's things that you can control and things that you can't control and also identifying the things that you can and cannot control Mm -hmm. and then of course the other thing is just this whole cycle of abuse That's obviously something that I've dived into a a lot. I I spent a good six months after this whole thing happened in, you know, weekly, biweekly therapy, processing this whole thing, processing what happened, processing why I even gravitated towards uh, a relationship like that. And uh, it's really helped enlighten me and become ultra Mm self-aware.
0: So what advice then would you give to men who are in similar situations?
2: don't be embarrassed for the male and the, and the female but the, but particularly the male because most males are embarrassed about this type of stuff don't be embarrassed you are one of four men who are who are or have experienced something like this so you're not alone so when you are at the supermarket when you are you know at the coffee shop when you're at Costco when you're out and about driving around just scan see how many men you can see count four know that at least one of those people one of those men have or are currently experiencing a domestic uh, abuse situation Um, so so just don't be don't be nervous or scared to talk about it be open with some tell somebody I didn't tell anybody and and that actually ended up hurting me when it came to uh, the court testimony because it kind of made it seem like you know it made it seem like I wasn't a victim because if a victim would tell somebody right but I think most people would know that that's not always true but Um, but anyway, just talk to somebody about it, get their opinion on what's happening, because chances are you're going to be falling into this abusive pattern where you're, you are on the receiving end and then you're going to start rationalizing it, making it seem like it's okay, making it seem like it's normal. And then you're going to sometimes make it even seem like it's your fault and that you actually deserve it. So talk to at least one person, multiple people, if you can, um, about what you're going through. And then women, I think, just the same thing. I, I think, um, you know, for women, I think certain situations are are um, might be a little bit different. I know in certain affluent areas, certain women might be um, they they might be living in like a nice house and have a nice car, and the breadwinner, quote unquote, is the the male, their husband. So a lot of times, their motivation for not getting out of a relationship like that could be financial, it could be kids, but just know that I mean. Just last week, I, I read in the newspaper that a woman was arrested for murder because she killed her abuser uh, in defense of herself. And so, you know, it's, it, it escalates. So I think my biggest advice for women, you know, depending on their certain situation, is that this stuff does not de escalate. It only gets worse. There's no such thing really as something that happens like this and it just gets better or the person learns from it and never does it again. They're doing this type of stuff for a reason. So you need to you need to end this relationship as soon as possible. Even if even if they're your meal ticket, even if they, you know, are the breadwinner, even if they're the father of your children, you don't want to end up in jail because you're finally defending yourself, or you don't want to be killed. You know, you don't want to be in the hospital, you don't want to end up dead because you're unwilling to to put up those boundaries. And that's a big one too, is the boundaries. A lot of times people in these situations they lack the ability to put up their own boundaries. And that could be from a lack of self worth or lack of self respect or a plethora of other different things. But boundaries are a big one. And basically, you're not putting up boundaries. The longer you allow this abuse to occur, the less boundaries you're implementing into your life. So set boundaries and get out of that relationship.
0: Oh, good advice for sure. I'm curious about how you are with people's response to learning about what happened. I know when I first saw the picture of you in the newspaper and, you know, it had your name and it was like domestic violence. I was like, that can't be true. Like, what the fuck? This is not the person that I know. And I think that you did your podcast episode a few weeks ago about what had happened because there were so many people who were just absolutely incredulous that you could have been involved in anything like this. So like, how are you, how are you dealing with people just trying to come to terms with this and, and how have you come to terms with it yourself? Because I mean, it really, I am sure has caused a massive reevaluation of your own idea of yourself as a man and yourself as a partner and as a human being.
2: Yeah, those are all really good points. Um, You know, the first thing is when this first happened, it was on the front page, top half of the Mercury news, just a day after two days after this happened and I'm born and raised in San Jose. So I knew that a lot of people were seeing that who knew me because I have connections in this area. So when this first happened, I felt like everybody knew. I felt like if I went to the grocery store, people would recognize me from the newspaper clipping. I felt like I was being targeted. I felt like I was being followed. You know, this was just the paranoid part of me. I felt like I felt like people were after me, you know? And I think that that was my projection of how I was viewing myself because I was so ashamed of how I responded in that incident. I would, you know, like I said, I, I never... You know, this is not who I am. This is not something that I stand for. This is not something that is a part of who I am. It's not something that has ever happened before and has never happened since. this is just this this was a very isolated incident, but I started to question myself, Jesus, am I an abuser? Am I am I an abuser? Like am I a domestic violence? Abuser? am I a spousal abuser? And that was really hard for me because I was questioning myself. And then I realized that I was running into people like at the gym or just out and about. People had no idea like some people knew, but the majority of people had zero clue that this ever happened So then I went into like the exact opposite I just assumed I either assumed everybody knew or nobody knew and at the same time like Nobody really cared all that much like in general Like as big as your problems might be like most people don't really care about your problems That's really it's another thing that I've learned about this whole thing is is that but you know one thing that it, it it was it was it was challenging because people that did not know me looked at me like I was an abuser. but everybody who knew me before or has since gotten to know me even after this happened does not look at me as an abuser and so for me, that was a really good indicator that you know, my, my personal beliefs on who I am is accurate is that I'm not that person. I'm not an abuser. This was an isolated incident. This was a very specific incident that occurred. And it's not a, it's not a good representation of who I am and it is not who I am. And so, you know, my brother, my older brother, he's basically like a father figure to me. You know, he gave me some really good advice about a week after this happened. He said, Danny, no matter what happens, no matter if you get off, if they drop the charges, if you go to jail, if you get convicted, no matter what happens, just remember that this incident, this moment in time does not define who you are. You are going to go off and do great things after this. This is going to be a really crappy time, no doubt, but this does not define you. You do not have to be married to this identity that some people might be creating for you or the news might be creating for you, or you might even be creating for yourself. And that was really valuable because at that time I was feeling so guilty. I was feeling so bad. I was feeling so horrible about what I did that I could have seen going down that path. And I think when he said that to me, it kind of snapped me out of it. And yeah, it doesn't define who I am. You know, I am not that person. It doesn't define who I am. I've learned from it. I've grown from it. I'm actually a better human being because of this experience. And um, yeah, those are the things that I went through immediately following. And then since, uh, you know, also, I, I was very ashamed to talk about it. I was, I was hiding it from people or I was, I wasn't hiding it. I was just not necessarily talking openly about it because number one, the case hadn't been closed. I was still fighting in court and I didn't feel like I wanted to talk openly about it until there was some sort of a conclusion. and um, But every now and again, someone would be like, hey, dude, like, what happened? Because I, I Googled your name and I, this popped up. And the hell, man, that doesn't sound like you. And then, I, you know, but I, but I also just wouldn't talk about it like with my public platform, like with Iron Crew, like with what I'm doing on social media and whatnot. It, it wasn't really a part of my story. And I always felt like I wasn't being truly authentic. And again, I think that I was waiting until there was a result of this whole thing. But since coming out and talking openly about this and letting people know what I've been going through, I've gotten nothing but support. There's been a handful of people that have kind of thrown hate my way and direct, direct messages and whatnot. But an overwhelming majority of the people are very supportive. They, you know, they're basically the same exact response that you just said, which is, "This doesn't sound like Danny. There must be more to the story. This is definitely an isolated incident. This is not who he is. What the hell happened?" That's usually the response that I get. So I've come to terms that I'm going to lose some friends, uh, and you know, I've I've lost a couple, quote unquote, friends, maybe a, a acquaintances. Really, I, I I've come to terms with that. That being the ultimate truth. That you know, moving forward as I start to date people and, and, and get to know women and potential, potential suitors, it's going to turn them off. I understand that. And the quicker I can tell somebody who I plan on dating long-term about this, the quicker I can weed out the people who might not necessarily be for me. And you know, it's an unfortunate truth of the situation that I'm in, but I, I also am of the, of the opinion that just because somebody does not see the value that I possess doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not valuable.
0: Absolutely. Amen to that. Well, I, I know that at some point you're going to be taking a three-year hiatus, <laughs> but I do hope that at some point in the not too distant future, you find a way to reach out to other men who find themselves in relationships like the one that you were in and can coach them through how to avoid ending up in that situation that ultimately resulted in you having to defend yourself physically and going down the path that evolved out of that, because there is nothing like hearing from somebody who has actual lived experience. And you have a lot of insight and as you said, compassion and empathy. And I think that you could do a world of good for men, but also for women. So I I hope that you find a way to do that.
2: I I will. And that's exactly why, you know, I was super excited to be on this show It was because I want, I want to start telling my story to as many people as I can, because I want to help. That was actually one of the first things I wouldn't say the first things, maybe like the top five things that I started to think about after this happened was God, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. Like it literally could, because I never in a trillion years would have ever imagined that I'd be living this, this right now. And if I can ha- like I said, if they happen to me, it can happen to anybody. And thankfully, you know, there there have been men who have reached out through social media about this and you know, my podcast, and hopefully this this episode gets shared throughout domestic violence circles and men just start to you know be able to open up a little bit. So it's definitely on the forefront of my mind is to talk about this as much as possible to get this story out to help men and women get through this because unfortunately the, the numbers don't lie. And the numbers say that you know it's a relatively high number of people that are experiencing this type of issue.
0: Yes, it is. Well, I'm going to put a link to your show's episode in my show notes. and I'd also like to include ways that people can follow up and can connect with you. So if you can share that, that would be great.
2: Ironcrudeathletics.com is the website. Everything that you can find on me is there, the podcast links, the YouTube links. I write blog articles. They're, all, they're primarily fitness articles and nutrition articles. But sometimes I'll go down a rabbit hole of mental health. There's actually an entire section blocked off for mental health on my blog. And uh, I'm real big on lifestyle stuff. IronCrewAthletics.com is where you can find everything. And uh, all the links to my social media platforms are on the website as well.
0: Awesome. Well, Danny, thank you so much for coming on the show and being so open and raw about what your life experience has been over the last several years. I truly appreciate you coming on the show.
2: I am honored to be the first male guest on your show and to share my story, 100%.
0: This has been the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass.
1: You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence, and safety, life after trauma, and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.